0: Welcome to the third episode of Archonnex Sessions. I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Amelia, how's it going?
1: Great. How are you doing, Paul?
0: I'm good. What have you been up to?
1: Uh, Well, this weekend I had a couple of visitors from the Bay Area. My uh, brother came down as well as a friend from college and just kind of got to play like LA tourist for a weekend, Um, went to Griffith Observatory, took a little hike up there, and just generally like wandered around town. It was great.
0: That's awesome. What does your brother do?
1: He he actually is about to change jobs, but he works in um, electricity rates. So he regulates how much you have to pay to get as much electricity into your house as you do. Basically, that's a super simplified way of explaining it because I'm probably not capable of explaining a more complicated way and the more realistic way of what actually goes on. Um, so he's actually in between jobs. He used to work for uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, up in the Bay Area, and now he's working for a smaller, um, more like individually focused company that kind of does the same thing, but on a more commercial level.
0: Ah, well, I like your I like your simple description.
1: <laughs> yeah, clearly we we ended up in um, very different fields. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it were up to my my parents, we would have probably like gone both into either optical engineering or lawyering. But here we are.
0: <laughs> well, thank God.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I can do that too. <laughs> How about you Paul? How was your weekend?
0: It was good. It was good. I uh I I was uh a single dad for the weekend while my wife was volunteering all weekend for our kid's school making costumes for for a big event coming up. So, it was a lot of fun. I went mountain biking with my son and uh and explored, found a new, uh, biking trail in North Hollywood that is actually a reclaimed, um, railroad track. And that was, that was a lot of fun.
1: Wow. That's really cool. Where in, whereabouts in North Hollywood?
0: It's, it's a, a bike, bike path called, uh, Chandler bikeway somewhere in like North Hollywood, Burbank area. So it was, it was kind of a drive, but it was worth it. It was six miles there and back. Which, uh, which is kind of the outer limit for my, my just-turned-five-year-old son. But he did it and was pretty proud of himself. Yeah. He had a lot of bananas.
1: <laughs> That's quite impressive. Way to go.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it was kind of challenging trying to find a mid-length flat bike path that would be safe to take a, a little kid on. I was uh but you know I found it, and I recommend it if anyone if anyone else is in the same position looking for a place to take their kids awesome Donna how are you doing
2: hi i'm great i uh i um I wanted to touch on something I talked about last week, so just very quickly, I feel like I kind of misspoke last week when I talked about NCARB's announcement about um licensure upon graduation. I said that I thought they'd botched the announcement. I don't think they really botched it as much as I think they um they didn't make it very, very clear in the announcement that what this means is that different architecture schools would be able to adopt a new curriculum that would allow for licensure upon graduation. I mean, the main thing was people just thought, oh, we're just going to start handing out licenses like Kleenex. But um, the point of it of the announcement was that curriculums would change. Now, I've been involved in a lot of discussions about curriculums, um, both online, both on Archonnect and um, with other groups that I work with locally. And the the notion to me of thinking about a curriculum option that is much more practice based, as well as then the counterpoint to that, a curriculum option that's much more theory based or totally based in parametric modeling or some other kind of specialty. I I really like this as an option for architecture schools going forward. So I'm hoping that discussion will keep happening. But I feel like I kind of jumped on NCARB last week. I don't think they, I I just think they didn't emphasize as much as they could have in that announcement that. Um, This would be about a curriculum change, which to me, as someone who has taught for many, many years, is really exciting. It's an exciting idea. Mm. So, you know, maybe we could end up with some better developments in our country because, as we all know, developers drive a whole lot of what gets built in this world. So if you had some practice-based architecture programs that would then maybe be able to know a little more about business and real estate development and those kinds of things, that might be good. So, Definitely. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. The other thing I wanted to say is that I'm recording from my office at work today, and I've completely hacked together some soundproofing, which I will take a photograph of and we can include it.
0: Please do. Awesome. (laughs) I, I, I uh, I need some soundproof inspiration.
2: No, oh, yeah. It's a lot of packing blankets. There was a thread on Archonnect years ago about show a picture of your workspace. And it was a really good thread. People just showed, you know, it took a snapped up picture of their, where they work, where they spend their eight hours a day or t- 12 or whatever, however many hours. It was a really nice thread.
0: I liked so it. So we, we're moving on to show us your recording space.
2: Yes. Show us your recording <laughs> space. <laughs> Speaking of which, I think Ken is in his... Uh... <laughs>
3: His own recording space, yeah. maybe
2: not properly dressed. Describe
3: your environment, Ken. <laughs> Let me see. Um, a 60-inch TV <laughs> all hanging on my wall. Dog beds and dog blankets are kind of my soundproofing. <laughs> so uh, I can tell you that buckwheat dog beds make for good soundproofing. Mm. Um, <laughs> good to know. Nice.
1: They say the ultimate hack for a sound recording is just a full closet. You go inside of your full closet yeah. and just stand amongst the clothes and you're good. <laughs> so if that's clothes or if that's dog beds, whatever works for you. Exactly.
0: Hoarders have the best audio quality.
2: <laughs> oh, they must.
0: <laughs> the more, the more. Uh,
2: Depending on what they hoard. <laughs>
0: True. Yeah. China, If it's all maybe papers, yeah. you
2: know, if it's toilet parts, then no. Yeah, that's going to be real reflective.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Ken, how has your week been?
3: Oh, uh, the trials and tribulations of being a, a homeowner have struck me down. Mm. Uh <laughs> Unfortunately, I had uh, my uh furnace service last week and I got red tagged.
2: <laughs> what does that mean?
3: Uh it means you cannot operate your furnace. You have to <gasps> really? repla- Yeah, you have to replace Ooh. it. Just because yeah. it was old? No, there was a uh, the whoever put the uh did the flue work on the house when they put the uh, new furnace in um 20 years ago <laughs> um didn't seal it properly so water was getting down into and it uh fractured the um one of the um uh, mechanisms in the furnace which i thought was okay and so it was leaking uh, carbon monoxide into the house oh nice yeah yeah <laughs> so that was uh, a bit of a shock um and then i said well i want to get some kind of uh, some level of fuel efficiency and Hey, while we're at it, how bad's the water heater? Oh, yeah. it's, at, it's at the end of its life cycle too. Great, let's throw that one in there. So it was a nice, tidy little um, nugget of a loan to uh, yeah. to get, and now you know that's why I'm sitting in a very cold house right now. So, <laughs> well, at least interest rates are low. Uh, yeah, there's a actually... <laughs> silver lining to this homeownership thing. <laughs> yeah and i'm actually tr- i'm working on trying to get a loan from uh the nice thing about Minneapolis I don't know if other cities have this but uh the Twin Cities has a pretty good uh program for people um um in the community to get some really low interest loans through the uh through the county and through the state so um I had to initially just to get the project going I had to work with the um the plumbing and heating company but I have to turn that around pretty quickly but so that's uh that um And then I spent the weekend um, purging. Nice. Uh, Yeah, I think it was about time you go through the house and you just kind of get rid of everything you don't look at. So I was kind of doing that other homeowner thing now that I'm getting a new furnace. Yeah. Um, And then uh, last night I had a um, really fruitful uh, community meeting. We talked a lot about what we're doing in the community, um, trying to improve neighborhood development and um, trying to get people to, you know, see their community and see what's happening in their community. So that's pretty important.
0: Well, let's, let's move on to, uh, to the news this week. Uh, one of the most, um, one of the hottest topics on our connect this week has been the Portland building and the, the, the status of the building. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether the building should be should be renovated. It looks like there's going to be, it would require a $95 million renovation. Um, Or as uh, a lot of Portland residents seem to believe, it should be torn down and replaced because people apparently hate it there. Uh, Anyways, we're fortunate to have with us Brian Libby, who's a Portland-based journalist and architecture critic. Uh, He's no stranger to the Portland building and all the surrounding controversies. Brian, are you there?
4: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for taking some time and talking to us about this. My pleasure. So, what uh, maybe you could give us just a little uh, history of the building?
4: Sure, sure. Um, The Portland building uh, is generally credited as as one of the first major works of postmodern architecture in the United States. Maybe not literally the first, but but the one of the first to be a a big, major downtown public building. And uh, um, it it was pretty controversial from the start, not only because of the design by Michael Graves, which was uh, a, a bold departure from, you know, boxy, glassy, or brutalist international modernism, but also because um, the building was rather compromised from the get-go because of its small budget and and certain other factors. Um, uh, it was designed coming on the heels of the energy crisis, for example. So, um, in addition to having small windows, the windows it does have are are shaded glass, and uh, um, you know some of the things, some of the ideas. Um, maybe worked better than others. Uh, uh, it has a series of kind of covered logias at the at the ground floor, which were uh, meant to kind of activate the pedestrian uh, realm, but kind of did the opposite. Um, but uh, yeah, this is also a city that has very few buildings by world renowned architects, and uh, um, I think there's some level of pride that uh, if you open up a textbook on the history of American architecture, that the Portland Building is uh probably the one building that would always be in there and has a place in history and uh, uh it's a continually interesting conversation piece because that which uh causes people to love it is is the same as what causes people to hate it, that it's this kind of bold, colorful building, uh, that it kind of feels like, almost like an architectural piece of pop art that that references history, but does so in a kind of playful, colorful way. And so uh, um, it, it's remained divisive throughout its history, and that's proving to be true today as well.
1: So Brian, hi, Amelia here. Um, I wanted to ask you about something you brought up previously in a piece you'd written a while ago about this very same issue. You compared the, uh, the Portland building to the Andy Warhol's Brillo advertisements, or Brillo paintings. Um, I really like that comparison because I think it really does a good job of casting the whole context of this argument into, historical, into an art historical context. So why don't you, could you explain that analogy a little bit more?
4: Well, uh, uh, I think what's interesting and, and what what people find difficult sometimes as well about postmodern architecture is that um, it, it may be correctly identified that that international modernism had had broken too much from the precedents of the past, and while the clean lines. Uh, and wide open volumes of, of modern architecture were really likable that, that at the same time, uh, um, you know, it wasn't such a bad thing after all to, to look to some of the historic architecture of the past for inspiration. Um, but the way in which a lot of postmodern architecture does it, especially maybe the Portland building is, is in a way that some people would find almost kind of cartoonish or ironic. And, and there becomes sort of a, a question uh, with, you know, the Portland building or the Brillo blocks boxes as to whether or not, uh, you know, it's an homage or, or a piece of caricature. And I think uh, uh, one thing about pop art and, and, that have being kind of an antecedent of the design style of the Portland building is, is maybe some of the, um, some of the having fun with, with existing, uh, you know, mass culture in the way that, that pop art does maybe that works a little bit better for an art gallery exhibit than it does for uh, a big government building. Uh, um, you know, for example, the building has these faux garlands on on the side of the building; these kind of fake ribbons. And uh, Michael Graves, you know, recently in his talk when he came here, pointed out that that garlands have um, for centuries been placed on the sides of buildings or or uh, carved into buildings, like cr- in classical architecture, as a traditional symbol of welcoming. And so it made a certain amount of sense that he did this on the building, on the Portland building. But at the same time, you know, it's it's pretty jarring to see these these fake ribbons on the side of a build of a, you know, 12 story building. uh, And and so, um, uh, you know, the building was designed in the early 80s. and, And so it wasn't it was only about a decade and a half or so uh, after the emergence of pop art. And, and uh, some of the things that Michael Graves was trying to do um, in terms of using a lot of color, for example, in the building, as well as, as looking back to historical forms, um, made sense in theory. But, but I think the pop art comparison is illustrative of the fact that, um, you know, sometimes what works in a, in a piece of art may not be as easy to swallow um, for a big building.
2: Brian it's Donna here. Um you used the word ironic and I I just I wonder if that's the right word. I mean to me um having been in architecture school in the 80s and when shortly you know shortly after the Portland Building was built I feel like in the early postmodernism there was really a sense that this is an optimistic direction, you know, we're moving away from the staid modernism and and moving into something that embraces culture and embraces human humanism in architecture and you know, I think it's it's it became ironic, certainly, as postmodernism then started being slapped on every, you know, gas station and, and sh- uh, strip mall. And uh, but I just I don't I feel like when Graves did the building, it was earnest.
4: I agree. I think uh, there's been a kind of accumulated perception of some of those moves as being ironic or 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 being in a, maybe in a slight way perverse in that, uh, uh, there's a kind of Disneyfication, you know, Michael Graves went on to become almost kind of like the house architect for the Walt Disney company. And, you know, I think of one of his buildings as having Greco-Roman columns that are made out of the seven dwarfs, for example. <laughs> and so I think right. you're probably right that ironic is a little bit of a misleading, um, term, especially in light of the fact that Graves is, uh, intentions were sincere. And, and uh, when I had a chance to interview him last week and also to go to his public talk, it it reaffirmed for me that, that, that he is sincere and he's not making, or at least not intentionally making tongue in cheek architecture. But I think there's just something about the, 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 some of the visual language to the Portland building, the way that can almost look like a, a giant wrapped birthday present or something that maybe cartoonish, uh, is something that can be a word that can be used. But but you're probably right that any sense of irony we have about it is is not necessarily what Graves intended, but but how we've kind of um, inferred meaning from it.
0: Well, addressing uh, his intention with the building and his attitude in general, there there were a few comments on Archonnect in the post that we made about his uh, presentation last week that you attended um, about him having... big ego Uh, after attending that, that event and interviewing him. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
4: I really don't think he, he showed a big ego. I think he, he was, he was um, funny and warm. And, and, you know, any of us are kind of a, 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 an accumulation of, of sometimes contradicting qualities. And there were moments where he was a little bit defensive, but I don't think uh, he was acting with ego. For example, um, he was very open to uh, ideas about how to change the building to make it more hospitable more livable for its occupants particularly with the in- introduction of natural light and and he also admitted that that the ground level uh covered area of the loggias um didn't really work the way it was intended and that maybe you could glass those off and and bring retail right up to the street front and uh and and he was self-deprecating at times as well it it, it is also true that that At at certain moments, either in my interview with him or in the uh, public conversation, he was um, willing to defend himself and to defend his ideas. But I, 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 I found that to be... Uh, just the quality of someone who who had self belief and you know obviously it 's a fine line with any of us between confidence and self belief versus crossing the line and going over into egotism and arrogance um but i I felt like I came away impressed with michael graves the man and and it's it's not an easy thing uh to to be an architect who has received a lot of acclaim in other other walks of life or other uh design circles um there are a lot he 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 is someone who um, has received a lot of attention and notoriety either for his designs of of, of uh, products for Target or some of his other buildings around the world. And um, you know, he he was honest and forthright about the fact that it's a little bit difficult to come back to Portland and and know that a building that helped make his career is is at least by half of the populace seemingly strongly disliked. But I think he's also um, you know someone who who at this stage of his career has, has had to accept the fact that um, when you try and do something bold, when you're part of creating a a sort of a, almost a new movement in, in architecture, that, that um, the very things that give you credit that are, that you're credited for being bold or, or innovative are also the things that, that are going to be jarring to people and, and cause a lot of uh, consternation, and, and in the case of the Portland building, it com- becomes even more complex because um, there becomes this sort of mixing up of, of, conversations about the the look and feel of postmodern architecture and its relation to modernism and all that stuff versus the the deeper questions about uh, the Portland building in terms of just its, its workability for people who spend time in it, that it's got low levels of natural light and the ground floor retail doesn't work so well. So it's a complicated conversation, but I, I felt like he was uh you know had a mixture like most of us would of of moments of humility and moments of defensiveness but also moments of openness
3: hey Brian this is uh, Ken I you know one of the things I've been trying to find and trying to understand is is the is the criticism that different today than it was when it was first constructed
4: uh, i think uh uh, it's pretty similar I think there there's evidence now of what it's like for the occupants so there is more conversation now about things like the low levels of natural light being uh, a detriment for example uh, I've heard it said that uh, city of Portland empo- employees who work in that building collectively have a, a higher rate of sick leave for example than city employees in in other Portland city of Portland buildings um, and so that wasn't that level of of uh, problem wasn't really known at the beginning, uh, but there was uh, a, a controversy about the style of the building, and also a sense that we were doing it on the cheap way back then, and and, and that certainly has carried forth today. I, I think one of the reasons it becomes so divisive here in Portland is um, it's 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 plenty just to be kind of arguing about the the legacy of postmodernism and and how this building looks to an audience in 2014 but but then to have the conversation about uh uh you know its difficulties uh for occupants and and all that stuff uh it it becomes in many ways a kind of referendum for Portland itself and that uh um this city has sort of a long tradition for um a high caliber caliber of design in certain realms whether it's architecture or maybe even more so urban planning and, and uh, landscape design and that sort of thing um but uh uh Portland has been plagued by having smaller amounts of wealth and, and money than than a lot of our city neighboring cities like Seattle and San francisco and los angeles and and uh the city has had a bit of a a, a dubious distinction or tradition of doing things on the cheap too often and uh so I think when people criticize michael graves' building here um, you know they're either aware of the fact that they're also criticizing. The client itself, in this case, or 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 something related to that.
3: You know, can I follow up on that? that because that's a good, that's a really good point to end on with the, what you just said. It seems like a lot of people want to relitigate the, the 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 veracity and the design of this building when we can't go back and change what you know Philip Johnson picked. And there's not a lot made uh, made about the fact that the building was. Uh, there was a competition in 1979. Philip Johnson was pretty much the one who hand selected Michael Graves. This is his first large public building, but it comes. I think a lot of what's being missed here, and because everybody wants to talk about whether or not postmodernism has postmodernism has value, and I'm not a big fan of Michael Graves, but I think the the real point that needs to be made is that the. the that people want to should be looking at themselves. They let this building fall into disrepair in a lot of ways. I mean, whether or not it was a, a material selection or value engineering of certain things, or um, they they de- this fascinated me. They designed, built the structure. I mean, the building was designed, built. I mean, so they were they <laughs> the fact that, that they were getting by on such a cheap building, and that that people today don't have a sense of what their responsibility is to public work and public architecture and the things that house the 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 house the functions of government. And if we can't, if this goes to, I it sounds a little. Maybe I'm kind of going out on a limb here, but I think the idea that we cannot get in this country anyone to to take a, a real. Um, a principled stand about raising taxes to pay for the things that we initially we we construct in the name of our you know for our citizenry, so like you said before, they get by on the cheap well that's that 's their problem that 's not michael gray 's problem and michael gray shouldn 't have to defend the mistakes of government they shouldn 't have to defend he shouldn 't have to defend the mistakes of the people he shouldn 't have to defend the mistakes of structural engineers or what have you but so I, I, you know, I think some of this discussion gets clouded because everybody hates postmodernism, but I think the real problem is is that no one's willing to pay for the things that you know are important to us, and that, this being one of them.
4: I think you're right, and I think uh, uh, in this particular case, though, that's why I would argue for preserving and renovating the Portland Building is that uh, there's actually an, an intriguing uh, chance to to really in a certain respect, complete the building to do it better than it was originally and to correct some of the the problems that resulted from it doing being done on the cheap or as a design build job. And I also feel like I would like to give Graves and his building the benefit of the doubt, even though I too share your dislike of postmodernism and I'm not a lover of Michael Graves' buildings. Uh, but I think uh, one thing I've learned in my years as an architecture writer and is that uh, societies uh, in in every country or in every region have this tendency to say, you know, this, this, this 50-year-old building or this 30-year-old building isn't so great. But, you know, that 100-year-old building, we really need to save that one. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously you can't save the 100-year-old building. Uh, uh, unless you save the 50-year-old building. And and I think, uh, you know, since we're talking about cost, one thing that's also worth pointing out here is it would still be more expensive to tear down the B- Portland building and build a new building from scratch. That uh, that $95 million figure is, is arresting in how large it is. But, you know, half of that would be devoted not to physical cost, but just to the cost of relocating employees for two years, which would have to happen anyway. And so we're talking about a building that, although it is indeed, divisive in terms of public uh, reaction to it is still something that could be renovated for more cheaply than a new building can be str- constructed. And there's also an opportunity for Portland to, um, uh, to, to affirm that it cares about historic preservation. Uh, you know, no city has a perfect record with historic preservation, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that people generally, generally seem to like about this city is that you can go to like it's old town or certain neighborhoods and that there are um, lots of wonderful old Victorian houses. Or or turn of the century storefront buildings, and and uh, even though the Portland building may strike people as something more like a disposable piece of architecture, and and or seem dated in terms of its 80s style, I think we just have to be very mindful and very careful about um, delivering final verdicts on buildings that are you know barely three decades old um, when the scope of history might tell us something different.
0: Well, it seems like that ninety five million dollar estimate for, uh, fixing the building should also be considered, um, the cost to correct the, the huge mistake they made when they, when they under budgeted the project from the beginning. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little curious. I, I came across an article the other day. Uh, it was an interview by Luke Earhart. I don't know if you're familiar with him.
4: Yeah. He, Uh, he did the interview for my blog.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Back in uh, 2012. And in the interview, he asked, uh, Michael Graves if, if uh, a renovation would be uh, a good idea. And Michael Graves was pretty firm in his response that um, that a renovation would just not be possible. He's, uh, to quote him, he said, for additional light, you'd have to go up 15 floors to get top light with an atrium. The whole building is a, is a structural column. So it wouldn't sustain that kind of thing. Um, in a way, that's just a silly notion. But last week it sounds like he was really proposing to to fix these problems with renovations I mean does it does it seem like he's changed his attitude about that
4: no we're talking about two different things actually um, that question uh, referred to the idea of bringing lots more natural light into the building by creating a, a huge skylight and an interior atrium and graves said that that probably isn't structurally possible. But when he came here last week, um, he was talking about certain other moves that could be made to introduce more natural light, specifically uh, changing a lot of the shaded glass that's on the facade to uh, clear glass. Um, he did admit that there are limits to how much more natural light you can get inside the building. And the inability, the structural inability of of putting a, an atrium and skylight in, in the middle is... is uh, indicative of that, um, and and it's probably true that changing the facade glass from shaded to clear would only go so far because a lot of that uh, is small windows anyway. So it is true that that um, you're probably never going to be able to introduce a bounty of natural light into the Portland building, but you might be able to introduce just enough natural light that it's uh, less of an issue and less of a factor in creating you know sick building syndrome or higher rates of sick leave, and and it might just get us to a point where um, you can make more of a justifiable case for, for spending the money on the renovation.
0: Have you been inside the building?
4: Oh, yes, many times. And it is dark and it is um, kind of oppressive. But I feel like there are things that they could be doing uh, that would certainly help. Uh, the, the, the changing out of the glass would be another one. But uh, Graves had also recommended uh, and, and said he had originally advocated going to more of an open office system. And I think that would be wise in this case as well. There there are uh, some executive offices that kind of hog what windows there are. And I think an open configuration along with clear glass w- would be a substantial step in the right direction, even if it wouldn't do as much as a big interior atrium.
1: So obviously there are a lot of like immediate changes that can be made that aren't as drastic as just should we keep or should we throw away. um I think that it also helps in this conversation to kind of zoom out a bit and look at other com- comparable preservation slash demolition projects that we've seen in the past. Um, what something something that came to mind immediately to for me was the issue about sometime last year with the American Folk Art Museum in New York City. Um, the debate around that surrounded the fact that MoMA already owned the property; it hadn't been in use for a while. People seemed to love the outside look of the bu- of the museum but were a little bit ambivalent about the overall success of the programming inside, but nonetheless wanted to kind of... There was a huge um, effort on Twitter and online to try to get people to rally around saving the building. And in the end, uh, it, it got demolished. And I believe they saved parts of the facade for kind of a... Uh, <laughs> the cynical way to refer to it was a head on a stick.
4: Mm-hmm. But... Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but at least, but that was kind of how things ended up. And I think what that says so much about how, obviously there are a lot of differences between that case and the Portland building, just in terms of totally different program, totally different intent, um, not a historical building necessarily, but certainly a newer one. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring the conversation a little bit about around to uh, regional architecture and the co- city context that these buildings are taking place in. Because in New York City, there's kind of this, or at least as I've never lived in New York City, but I'm getting this overall feeling that a lot of the reporting around architectural preservation issues like that um, excuse a lot by saying, oh, well, it's New York City. You know, there's this turnover happening all the time. There's always like out with the old and with the new. Um, We have historical bases, but we also are constantly just like renovating all the time. And I don't get that impression at all (laughs) from Portland, obviously. So I don't know, um, Brian, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the overall urban context of Portland, what their type of priorities are and how that factors into the debate around the Portland building.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, interesting that you would bring up the American Folk Art Museum, because there is a, a another possibility that we haven't discussed here for the Portland building, which is basically keeping the facade and completely gutting the building. And maybe that's when you would be able to put an atrium in the middle, for example, and introduce more natural light. And, and uh, so I think that's actually a viable option. Uh, in, in terms of regional priorities, um, I think the Portland building actually in its original design did aspire to have a kind of Portland values uh, in that um, uh, uh, Portland really transformed into its current self in the 70s and late, you know, and maybe the early 80s as well. And that it, it became much more focused on the pedestrian realm. and and being pedestrian friendly at the street level and and having mixed use buildings and ground floor retail and that sort of thing and the portland building actually was was part of that process and and even if the say the logias on the ground floor um don't very don't work very well as retail they were at least trying to have ground floor retail and trying to be pedestrian oriented and and so um you know in some ways uh even though the Portland Building can feel completely alien to the rest of the city's architecture, or to the rest of any city's architecture, it did aspire to some of the kind of urbanism that that, uh, that a Jane Jacobs uh, professed, for example. When I when I talked with Michael Graves uh, in an interview last week, he specifically uh, cited Jane Jacobs and and Robert Venturi's uh, learning from Las Vegas as precedents that kind of helped set the Portland Building in motion that he thought he was part of. So um, it. it it wasn't a completely successful articulation of some of the Portland values like pedestrian friendliness, but I think, uh, um, it was still part of a changeover, uh, in that way. It was really reacting strongly to a Skidmore Wings and Merrill building across the street that had almost no pedestrian presence at all. And, and, uh, was really part of the kind of generation of office buildings built in the seventies that, you know, have reflective glass and, and feel like, uh, uh, they could be plopped down anywhere, and, and so uh, the Portland building, even if it wasn 't completely successful, was trying to have a sense of place and trying to be about the pedestrian, which is what Portland is about uh, today um, but you know I think it 's going to be a question really of of just how much of a, a renovation we 're talking about uh, if it becomes something where you change out the glass and and improve this street front a little bit, or if you do some kind of radical Um, gutting of the building that really preserves only the facade. But um, even though a lot of uh, even though, you know, the the American Folk Art Museum introduced this idea of, you know, quote unquote, facadism, this idea that it wouldn't be worth saving a facade if the original building inside was, was completely transformed. I actually disagree with that notion. And I think in certain particular cases, um, maintaining a, a historic facade and gutting a building can be the right move. It, it certainly doesn't work for every building. Like uh, for the past five years or so, for example, here in Portland, I've been involved in trying to save Um, A a building called Memorial Coliseum, a a 10,000 seat arena that used to be home to the city's NBA team from demolition. And if you change the facade of Memorial Coliseum, you might as well tear down the whole building because it's basically a glass box with a concrete seating bowl inside. And seeing the seating bowl and its curve from the outside through the geometrically patterned glass is what the experience of that building is all about. But Michael Graves' Portland building was kind of a Michael Graves' skin on uh, a pedestrian architect's building all along. So it might make sense in this case. I was just
1: going to compare it to uh, previously what you said about the Brillo pads so that it's kind of a taking of the initial image that was intended and treating it only as an image, treating it just as a two-dimensional facade and just preserving that.
4: Right. There weren't actually brillos inside Andy Warhol's brillo box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. So I tend to, you
2: know, not agree with facadism or fa- facadectomies, as we call them. But in this case, Brian, I do feel like you've articulated really well why this might be an appropriate case for that kind of use. I wanted to go back, though, to what you said earlier about um, Portland sort of coming into itself in the late 70s as the city that it is now. And as someone who has a history in Portland, I... I lived there as a young child. And then my parents moved back there when I was in college. And I actually worked there in a couple of architecture firms for a couple of years um, in the early 90s and studied Portland all in undergraduate school for its urban design work and its very bold moves that it made towards pedestrian activities and um, the transit center, the transit mall and all these things. Um, When I worked in a firm, there. I worked at Wynn Architecture, which no longer exists, but um, we did Machismo Mouse, we did Casa Ubecha, we did all these restaurants that are all gone now. Yeah,
4: and Machismo Mouse a- feels a lot like the Portland building and its colorfulness too.
2: <laughs> right, right. So to me, the Portland building, to me, this has always been what I've said, is the building that gave architects in Portland license to go a little crazy, to do some of the very bold and exciting things that they did. Ended up doing. Um, I, you know, you look at the Coin Tower. I don't know if it's still called the Coin Tower, but that brick tower that's right next to it, the Justice Center by Zimmer Gunsell Fresca, right across the park from the Portland Building. The even Big Pink. I think I don't think Big Pink would be pink if the Portland Building hadn't come first. My attitude is the Portland Building is so critical for its influence that it it gave to the people of Portland and the architects of Portland. And that, that rejecting it is like rejecting your own past. And that's, you know, you, you can't wipe Bud Clark off the map. He's part of Portland. You can't get rid of the Portland building. It's just part of what makes the city what it is today. I think you're
4: making a great point there. Um, you know, that probably the most off-quoted, off-quoted local mantra um, is keep Portland weird. And I think the Portland building is a wonderful fit within that. Uh, you know, it, it isn't as if we have some um austere pe- piece of modernism or some kind of reverential Louis <laughs> Kahn building it's the portland building is a is a weird looking piece of architecture again it looks like a <laughs> you know a wrapped birthday present and and uh you know i think it would serve portland and portlanders well to make peace with the fact that it's not a masterpiece but it's a standout piece of architecture that is worth holding on to in some form Pre- specifically because it embodies on some level uh portland values just like you're talking about you
3: know what's striking about this building and I, I was thinking about it thinking about postmodernism and just thinking about this building and thinking about the our propensity for demolition it seems like americans really um have a don't have a good sense of their own history or their own sense of culture that this particular style seems so Quintessentially American. I can't think of anything in the twentieth century that you know you can put Frank Lloyd Wright aside. There was never really any driving force in public architecture around creating more and more Frank Lloyd Wright-like art. I mean, he was a a creator of objects. This was, a, to me, it seems, and just looking through the you know twentieth century, it seems that postmodernism is is America writ large in, in a lot of ways. It seems like a quintessential expression of American ideals at that time you know the optimism you talk about the the Reagan just got elected i mean the the bright shining <laughs> city on a hill i mean there was this really the, the 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 americans beat the russians in 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 hockey i mean there was this this great optimism there was this resurgence of american pride and this seems kind of symbolic this movement kind of seems symbolic of that and you can i can really empathize with graves seeing this as his his baby in a sense, and that this is his, his firstborn. And it really seemed connected to not wanting to see his firstborn euthanized before he even <laughs> passes away. Exactly. I mean, so that's really, I, so I think, like everybody was saying before, that you know we we've lost our own sense of history. This is like the one thing that if you erase this part of our history, what do you do to all the other things that come after it? These, were, like Donna said, it gave license to a lot of architects to do a lot of crazy things. I mean, you may not like Chris Cross and his Sailing Away songs or Rick Astley, but they still exist in our culture, and you know we get nostalgic about you know oh I don't I'm not going to listen to Criss Cross twenty four seven. But I hear that song, and it kind of takes me back to that period, and I get I get a little wistful, and I think there's there's places for that in our collective consciousness that I think get lost.
4: I agree. I think uh, we the the cities around the world that I love are are collections of, of architecture from every generation, and the the variety uh, of historical time periods and styles is precisely what gives. Uh, uh, city's vitality. And I think particularly for an American city, and then even more so for Uh, a Western American city that lacks those centuries upon centuries of history, uh, there's all the more of a responsibility to be protective of the history that a city does have. And so, uh, you know, it isn't as if Portland has as many uh, buildings from different eras as, as Paris or London does, let's say. And so, you know, I think there's all the more responsibility to keep and preserve what we have, especially if it has some kind of historical significance.
2: Agree. Totally agree. Brian,
4: thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. I think we'll um, definitely be touching on to this topic a lot more as it develops. I believe Graves is also going to, um, there's going to be an event sometime later in November honoring him and his uh, entire legacy. So hopefully we'll get to revisit this issue as it continues and as Portland continues to kind of grapple with it. Um Moving on to something on the more national scale uh recently, there was an article published in The Guardian um, about potential libraries for obama so obama's presidential library after he finishes out his term will be a um uh, a kind of inevitability and the l a Times recently unveiled four potential locations for um, for that library, which include Columbia University, University of Hawaii, University of Chicago, and University of Illinois at Chicago. So the Guardian, as far as I can tell, um, put it to their U.S. opinion section to propose, to, to uh, reach out to a few um, established, quite um, quite reputable American architects and see what sketches they could come up with for some basic uh, speculative designs for their version of the library. And Safe to say I think reactions to these designs were less than enthusiastic. Um yeah. <laughs> let's uh let's take a look and uh Ken, maybe you wanna start out with uh, a few of your initial reactions to some of these buildings.
3: Ah, oh, wow. Um you know the the two I like the most are, are Columbia University um one and the um one by Paul, um He's a, a friend of Archonnect. Uh, at least I, I seem to recall him being on the, on the, on the threads a lot uh, a long time ago. But um, what the, the one that really irritates me is, is probably the first one. It, it really, it's, I, I couldn't tell. You know, it's funny. Last week we talked a little about it. I mentioned um, the Cyark post about a brothel and a childcare facility. And I felt quite embarrassed later when I thought about it. I'm like, this has got to be a joke. Um, and now I'm looking at this building here and I really, I thought I had to take another a second look at, it. I'm like, is this for real? I mean, it's a, literally an O. Um, and I'm like, it can't, it can't be. And it, it, it looks like a, foot, a cross across between a football stadium and Marina tower. I couldn't figure out what is actually going on here. And Ken,
0: you're referring to the Datner architects. Yeah. Proposal?
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a big but, O. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big O with turf and it, and it looks, it really does look like it, it draws it and the way it's cited on the, in the park. It, I, I remember the criticism when Obama was running in 2008 and he was uh, at the um, uh, the stadium in, in Denver and he had, <laughs> he had all those Greek columns and it was just this kind of almost like this deification of, of a of a president or not even a president a candidate and i look at this thing the way it's cited it almost has this same kind of like very oddly kind of almost almost feels like a um a temple it really it it, it it's very strange to me, but I liked what I liked the most about the Columbia University is, is it's the possibilities of uh, how it moves through a community and, and how it penetrates buildings and, and creates its own spaces. So that, that was really striking to me. There was also a toilet reference in the, in the comments
0: <laughs> regarding yeah. the Dapner yep. proposal.
1: Yeah. Uh, it also reminded me of the Danish pavilion uh, a few years. I think it was like at the Venice Biennale a few years ago. Or Art um, Architecture Biennale, the Danish oh, yeah. Pavilion has the, uh, yeah. you could cycle up the, the spiraling um, form and it, this looks almost exactly the same to me. I'm going to have to like go back and double check that. But I was kind of thrown off by that. And yes, the fact that it's a giant O, it's like, oh my God, all of the uh, satellite, <laughs> all the satellite images from now yes. on are just going to be like, I, yeah, it's and also just seemed ridiculous to me. So, Donna, what do you think? <laughs>
2: Who says postmodernism's dead? We can do a big O, as, as for Obama. Um, I, you know, I don't—I didn't even look very closely at any of the entries because I just kind of felt like this whole endeavor was really irresponsible, personally, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been no conjecture yet. There's been—it's—let the guy finish his term. And, and you know, I, I just— I don't know, it just felt to me like we're asking some people to toss out some really cartoony ideas and it in a way to me it kind of cheapens what the whole notion of using architecture to represent ideas means or should mean in something like this. I mean, you look at Bill Clinton's library and and I have not been to it, but everyone I've um it was Polshek, right? Um everyone says it's just phenomenal, that it's an amazingly beautiful building, that it 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 resonates and it stays with you. And, uh, you know, I, I look at this, the Guardian says, oh, let's ask some people what they would design. And it just felt to me like it just felt cheap. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really all I, I have to say about it.
1: Yeah, Donna, um, I completely agree that this this when I first saw this, I was like, I had no idea they were already like soliciting these these submissions. And then The very scant description on the Guardian side is like, oh, well, we just had some people ask some U.S. architects what they might think it might be. And there's really no there's no vetting. There's no research. It's really just like a random poll. So it is a little bit one of those like was this just made for uh, for hits. But regardless of that, I think that starting to think about how to architecturally represent Obama's presidency is going to be really tricky because if you found your entire rhetoric of presidency initially on this notion of fluctuation of change, how does that, how do you get that into a static building? <laughs> you know, how do you how do you use that to embody all of the knowledge that you might and in, then inhabit in there with all of the with the library content? So I think it's like a really interesting thing to just start thinking about. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's some positivity to glean from it. Um I also just wanted to correct the comparison I made earlier. It's not at all at the Venice Biennale, I totally misspoke about that the Danish pavilion that the O shaped one reminded me of was their pavilion at the Shanghai expo in 2010. So if you're running to, uh, we'll yeah, put that image in the show notes and you can do kind of like a A B AB comparison.
3: Any other thoughts? Oh, I think the, the note, you know, it's interesting. The, the, he does have three significant sites in his history and actually four, if you, if he were to even consider Kansas as a, as a potential site because of his um, connection with his mother, but that, the idea that it would be one building in one one state is interesting because i keep saying his connection he's such a worldly much was made about his worldliness about you know his father coming from kenya he living in in uh, in east a- in um uh, in asia and you know living in hawaii chicago new york i mean it almost like why is it why is it one building why is it many buildings why isn't it represent you know why isn't it different satellites in in different locations it seems to be more representative of who he is and perhaps his impact um you know say what you want about him politically i think you know obviously history will, will take care of that um but it probably at least it aspires to more about who he is as an individual and what he meant for his presidency meant for 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 a lot of people in this country
2: I mean, I think you can make a judgment at this point about what his presidency meant, his election meant to a lot of people. But right. I, this is one of my pet peeves, and I will take this opportunity to stand on my soapbox. I think we're too quick to memorialize things in this yep. country. You know, an event happens and the next day they're like, "What? how are we going to build the memorial? Who's going to design it? Where's it going to be? I just think we need to slow down and contemplate things a little bit more. Um, I, you know, I love the notion of a of a presidential library in Hawaii because I think, are we ever going to get another one there? there, um, So that that could be great. But I just also maybe this is why the Guardian, the Guardian's project here rubbed me the wrong way is I just let's slow down and take a look at what his legacy is first, at least for a few years before we start, you know, burying it in a library building.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Any other final thoughts on this? Project or should we move on? Let's move on.
2: Let's do it. Let's move on. (laughs) Give it some time to simmer.
0: (laughs) Well, another thing that uh, that we wanted to talk about this week was the uh, or is the Acadia conference that has actually kicked off uh, on Monday this week at USC. Uh, Acadia, for um, for those who aren't familiar with it, is uh, the Association for Computer Aided Design in Architecture and uh each conference is hosted by a different uh different host in a different location. This year the um the topic is uh design agency and it's hosted at uh the USC uh campus. Um so the conference uh actually starts on Thursday between the 23rd and 25th. We have uh we have three three uh reporters covering it including Amelia. Um and Nicholas and uh, Anthony Mori. Uh, so, so we're going to have we're going to have a bunch of um, a bunch of reports on on the conference next week. But to to give a little introduction to the conference, uh, Amelia actually spoke with Alvin uh, Huang, who's the co-chair of of the the conference at USC. Uh, he's also the director of uh, Synthesis Design and Architecture, a practice here in in Los Angeles. So, so let's, uh, let's listen to that, that conversation now.
5: Um, my name is Alvin Huang. I'm an uh, assistant professor at the USC School of Architecture and uh, principal of the firm Synthesis Design and Architecture. And I am also co-chair of this year's 2014 Acadia Design Agency conference held here in Los Angeles uh, October 20th to 26th at uh, the USC School of Architecture.
1: So, what exactly is Acadia?
5: Acadia is the association for computer aided design in architecture and it's a uh, network for um, designers that are interested in uh, computational design research and uh the way that th- these things are being applied as uh techniques and uh, tools and explorations into uh, design.
1: Could you give me a little bit of history about the Acadia?
5: So Acadia was founded in 1981 uh, by Bill Mitchell, Chuck Eastman, and Chris Yesios. Um, Since then, it's hosted over 30 conferences across North America and has grown into uh, sort of the premier uh, association for uh, computational design research. Um, The conferences are held annually, I think, Uh, We are now the 24th annual conference, and uh, basically we pull an attendance that is global. Um, We've got people coming to visit us from as far as New Zealand, Australia, Asia, Africa, um, all over Europe, and, of course, all across North America.
1: Wow. So has it always been associated with USC or is that a recent development?
5: No, so every year it's a little bit like the Olympics. Every year a uh, team will put together a proposal or teams will put together proposals to host the next conference and uh, those proposals are reviewed by the board and uh, you basically pitch your city, your school, your organization, your theme and uh, a selection is made. So this is actually the first time the conference will be held at USC.
1: Oh, cool. Where has it been held in the past, usually in the United States or elsewhere?
5: Uh, yeah, it's always in North America. Um, so Acadia has sister organizations called ECADIE, which is the European version, uh, CADRIA, which is the uh, Asian version, and uh, C Gradi, which is the South American version. Uh, the North American version... Uh, not to knock any of the other ones, it is the oldest and probably most uh, mature of those organizations.
1: Wow, okay. And so I've noticed that just from perusing a little bit of the website, the programming for the entirety of the Acadia event doesn't, it's not just a conference, but it also includes some workshops um, kind of buffeting the event for the few days beforehand, I believe held mostly at USC.
5: Right. So what we have is, it's actually uh, grown through the years and extended. And now uh, what we have is three days of design workshops, which are being led by uh, a a wide range, ranging from sort of academic-based computational researchers, software companies, and even large corporate offices. Um, All of these workshops are here for both students, practitioners, researchers, academics, to attend and uh, basically explore different uh, design techniques and design processes and learn about how to use them and uh, hopefully apply them in the future. Additionally, we have uh, the three day conference itself, as well as a one day hackathon and five keynote speakers. Uh, Zaha Hadid is our headliner, um, computational designer or game designer Will Wright, the inventor of SimCity, is another. Casey Reyes, who uh, is the inventor of a coding language called Processing, uh, computational design research architect, slash uh, public spatial artist Mark Fornes of the very many, is another one of the speakers. And finally, we have Greg Otto, who is a structural engineer who uses uh, computational processes for producing complex facades and structures. He's the principal of Walter P. Moore here in Los Angeles. So
1: how did you go about choosing these keynote speakers?
5: Well, what we really wanted to do was highlight the kind of spectrum of of computational design and not focus on it as something that was exclusively about one thing or the other. And so we were very keen on getting Zaha, who we think is uh, one of the best examples of how computational design has changed conventional practice in in the sense of it being uh, a true architectural practice that has delivered and and realized a number of of computationally enabled projects, Um, but then also beginning to think about how it is changing the terms of practice. So a guy like Mark Fornes, who is doing mostly public art projects but is trained as an architect and is working with architecturally driven processes to create public art that is architectural and spatial. Um, But then we also wanted to begin looking at how this kind of computational design aspect is not only spreading to other areas but being uh, sort of informed by other disciplines. So Will Wright uh, as the creator of SimCity is also trained as an architect, but now produces games and produces some of the most, uh, I guess, influential games of the of the video game era. And these games, have, like SimCity, The Sims, are are really influential towards the way we think about the built environment. And then Casey Reyes is a designer, not an architect, um, but he's also a coder and. He's been teaching and influencing architects for some time because of his uh, development of language processing. And processing is something that uh, really has changed the game for a lot of architects. And so we wanted to kind of go to the source and see how, uh, see what he's been up to lately and, and showcasing what uh, his artwork and his, his coding has been all about. And then uh, finally, With Greg Otto, it's again looking at somebody who is in an allied discipline in terms of structural engineering, but applying these same sorts of computational principles towards the rationalization and realization of structures that are highly complex and involve a lot of uh, computational processes to enable them.
1: That's pretty incredible. It sounds like a really fascinating variety of speakers that cater to very specific pockets of this kind of conference that needs to focus on how the field has changed so drastically, I think, Mm -hmm. from inception in the early 80s. Obviously, things are very different. Um, So maybe, could you try to give me like a punchy, basic explanation of what the conference is? Because it seems to cover so much ground and have so much content and so many amazing little pockets that are going on. How do you sum up what's happening in kind of a in a short way as possible.
5: Well, I think what we've tried to do is take the term design agency as something of an open-ended and uh, wide description that is open to interpretation. Um, so in in one hand and a computational process you can think of design agency as something that is about multi-agent systems, but I think more of what we're, we're, the openness is more about thinking of the term agency as something that which is about purposefulness or or application and thinking about the bottom line with computational design is still about design and uh we're i think really looking at how we design with technology rather than for technology and i think uh how we design with technology is something that has always been at the very core of innovation in architecture, whether you're looking at uh, Brunelleschi's invention of uh, perspective, which changed the way he designed in three-dimensional drawing, or if you are looking at Otis's invention of the elevator, which revolutionized the building by being able to go vertically, or the emergence of uh, mass production in uh, the turn of the century, which allowed us to mass produce columns and glass and steel and begin to really think about the terms of modernism as something that is a process of industrial fabrication. And I think we're at a critical point right now where all of these technologies, whether it is a design technology, like perspective, or a building technology, like the elevator, or a fabrication technology, like mass production, are coming back to us in different forms. Again, thinking about things like parametric modeling as a design technology, or of, uh, say, real-time sensing in buildings as a building technology or digital fabrication as a making technology. And all of these things are beginning to redefine the the terms in which we as designers can interrogate uh, what we're doing but also begin to inform what we're doing, to think about these things as something that have the potential to make radical changes to the way that we practice and the product that we produce and i think uh one of the things that i'm really intent on on pushing on this stuff again going back to saying that design is at the core of things is the fact that i think in the end if you talk about like uh, technology being a driving factor towards all all of this stuff a lot of what is explored in this conference at times has been discussed as what we call digital architecture and i think uh You know, the term digital architecture, I think, very, very soon will be obsolete. Um, When I was a uh, recent graduate from the USC School of Architecture in 1998, um, when I was at school, there was talk about when you graduated, were you going to go to a CAD office or a normal office? And it's a a term that is laughable now. There's no such thing as a CAD office. All offices are CAD offices. And... uh, Soon, you won't be able to make that distinction about what is a digital architecture or a digitally enabled architecture. It's all going to be informed by or driven by some sort of digital process.
1: Yeah, that seems like the big joke whenever people do refer to a digital architecture is that it's more a sign of our times than it is of the actual technological ability. It's more just how we are still constantly referring to the past that came before it and feeling the need to distinguish it as something different when in fact it's quickly. Almost clearly, obviously, just the status quo. Yeah, and and using it in particular, and in, um, as I'm sure you can comment specifically, being associated with USC, uh, Los Angeles, and architecture schools like SCIARC and USC are particularly interested in all of these varying technological aspects of digital design. So not just um, immediate technological applications in the building, but also more on the design level, mm-hmm. and have programs devoted to. Um, The digital architecture of virtual environments, as well as um, designing technological applications for adaptive buildings or transforming buildings in some uh, digitally rendered way. So, I wanted to ask you a little bit about. If there's so much application already uh, going on at schools, um, how do you think that factors into the audience for Acadia? Like, who is the ideal audience that you hope the conference will attract?
5: Well, I think the ideal audience for Acadia is really the people that are interested in exploring innovation within research, uh, innovation within architecture and sort of the direction that architecture can go, not necessarily where it has to go, but where the potentials lie for it to go as a, a exploratory process and a research-driven process. And I think by research, I want to kind of clarify that I think in architecture terms, the term research is often misused and often abused. And research is often sort of paralleled with thinking about the collection of information and potentially the uh, analysis of information. Whereas I think uh, in terms of design research, we're talking about design processes that produce information or produce knowledge, where you're actually able to learn from the process in a way of not learning what's out there, but learn from some by producing something that's not already out there. And so I think what we're looking at with this conference is very much, uh, a, we have made a very conscientious decision to not be focused on pure academic research, but also look at uh, industrial research and the way that computational design research has changed the game in terms of industry. So you'll see that uh, our attendees and our speakers and our workshop leaders are all coming from not only academia, but they're also coming from some of the most Uh, I guess, established and uh, respected architecture firms in the country. So we've got people coming from Zaha Hadid Architects, SOM, MBBJ, uh, HKS, uh, the the KPF, like the the list goes on and on and on. And uh, I I find it really, really fascinating to see that, you know, all of these, uh, what some may think of as, uh, you know, established design practices, are also really pushing the boundaries in terms of exploring novel processes to, you know, different intentions. Some of them are, are focused more on uh, expediting and efficiency, and, and uh, some are focused on environmental processes and, and trying to look at analysis and structure, and others are more concerned with geometry and fabrication. But there, there's a wide, wide range of things happening. And I think the fact that it is not just a uh, about the Academy, but also about the industry is something that is really important.
1: Well, Connect is certainly very excited about the conference. We will be there, um, a few of us will actually be there attending and reporting, covering all of the keynotes as well as having some basic coverage going on throughout the conference. Um, So we're hoping to get a lot of content there and it's gonna be really exciting just being in the crowd.
5: Fantastic, we're uh, really looking forward to having you guys there.
1: Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, Do you have anything to add that you'd like to include?
5: Well, I'd like to add that uh, the conference takes place uh, October uh, 23rd to 25th. As the actual conference dates, registrations are still open. We've sold out on student tickets, but we still have uh, full price tickets available. And uh, we uh, will hope to have a amazing uh, event that uh, we'd like to invite you, invite you all to attend.
1: Cool. Well, thanks so much, Alvin. Thanks so much for talking with us.
5: And uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, so that's uh, that's a little introduction to to the show. Do you guys have any uh, any any thoughts on on the conference?
1: I just wanted to. Uh, I, I just wanted to point out that. Uh, go, Amelia. Oh, go ahead, you, Donna. you go first. Okay. Well, thank you. I was just going to um, point out that we have some really exciting coverage with the keynote speakers co- coming up, um, which includes Zaha Hadid. Um, Will Wright, who um, invented SimCity and has done many, many other things, but will be commenting on the nature of of design agency in game building. Um, And also Casey Reyes, who has, I'm not exactly sure, Paul, maybe you can refresh my memory on this, but Casey Reyes has actually written a coding language specific to architectural design that has informed so many other people's in this current generation's work in the profession. So we've got a really fantastic stretch of people speaking.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting, diverse collection of voices.
1: All right, Donna, your turn. (laughs) (laughs) I just, the only thing I really know about Acadia this
2: year, and I used to follow it more closely because Ball State was very active in it. um, The the only reference I've even heard to it really this year has been um, a feminist wall of shame reference in which, um, you know, there's how many speakers and Zaha is the only <laughs> woman. Um, and, you know, maybe, going back to your Cosmopolitan article from the 60s, Amelia, why are there not more women in there coding and doing this this kind of work? I, uh, you
1: know, yeah. I'm so glad that we included that because I've seen recently so many other publications pick up on that same concept and do uh, either reports or statistical analyses of programming and coding history over since like the last 40 years and seeing how specifically in the late 80s right around when digital design in this forum not that it's def- definitely related but came about and kind of started gaining steam uh was when the female quotient in programming started to drop off and it started becoming a little bit more of a male-dominated field so maybe i can find some more of those uh, pieces and they all like all kind of come at it from different angles and aren't necessarily about architecture but it's yeah, I, I, if <laughs> I think that we will see more women, hopefully, in this juncture um, in the future. We will. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, for this event, I think one Zaha equals or is greater than <laughs> than three the three male keynotes, I, at least in popularity. I'm sure that her her Absolutely. keynote is going to be in, there's going to be lineups uh, trying to get in.
2: Absolutely, and good for her. Go, Zaha.
0: All right, so. Um, you know, I think I think we can we can start wrapping up. Um I I'm really excited to say actually that my my um offer for some free t-shirts last week actually got uh grabbed up right away. So we Excellent. we wow. have been getting a lot of people listening to the complete uh episodes and last week, you know, that that was a uh, almost a 2-hour episode. So I was really really happy to hear that. And we've also Received a few five out of five ratings on iTunes, which I was super excited. Uh, really, really nice to see the comments, the good comments um, in iTunes. Uh, the feedback so far has been great. Um, we're also open to suggestions if people have any 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 suggestions. So you know, we're we're all ears. And uh, and and I'd like to extend the the t shirt offer if anybody else is is uh, made it through this one. Um, We've got some more shirts here that are waiting for podcast listeners to start wearing. So shout, uh, send me an email if you if you want a shirt and uh, we'll see what we have available and we'll gladly send one out to you.
2: Are those the architecture sucks shirts or are they different ones?
0: Um they there are some architecture sucks shirts. There's a lot of a lot of different shirts. You know, what we have remaining are the ones that uh, you know, didn't sell out the last time that we had right. the, the shop up, but you can see what's remaining on uh, uh We took down the link a while ago just because you know the shirts have all been kind of sitting around for a long time, and um, we've we've gotten a little tired of the designs. <laughs> so we. Uh, <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. Can I can I can I bring up some deep history, and you can maybe confirm for me, Paul, if this is true? Sure. Wasn't there a batch of architecture sucks shirts that um, was misprinted, and then were sent to like goodwill to give to homeless people? <laughs>
0: yes, you have a good memory. Is that true? Yes. There was a, there was a, a whole batch of Architecture Sucks shirts that I, I forget what was wrong, but the printer made a mistake and it still said Architecture Sucks. So um, we didn't take them and we discovered pretty soon because at the time our the connect office was uh, in the middle of downtown, uh, which downtown has the densest population of homeless in the world. Um, so we started seeing a lot of homeless people walking around with architecture t-shirts. That
4: breaks my heart. I mean, it's funny, but it breaks my heart,
0: doesn't it? It it gives the shirt a whole new meaning (laughs) when you see a a homeless person. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's some of those shirts. There's a bunch of other shirts. I don't want to get too much into the shirt thing because the whole point is to not, not promote the shirts. But, um, (laughs) and then, uh, so in addition to that, you know, follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, you can sign up to our RSS feed, subscribe to the podcast. Um yeah, looking forward. What do you what do you guys uh see as some topics that that might be coming up next week or that you might want to be talking about next week?
2: So, there was a news item posted by Dane Borda on a uh talk that was given at Pratt. Um with Annabelle Seldorf and Michael Kimmelman. And the the title of the news article was Give and Take. And they were talking about ethics of practice in the urban environment, basically. Um, and Kimmelman, it sound, I, I don't know if there was a recording of this event or if there's a transcript somewhere, but from the write-up, um, it sounds like it was really interesting. And Kimmelman was talking about how these new, all these luxury Buildings, these big um, high rises in in New York these days they they are they are taking they take view they take sunlight they take public space you know they're they're mostly about taking and then they contrasted that with um, projects that can give and Annabelle Seldorf was talking about a um, a recycling center she did that that gives back to the community um, and then obviously the Sugar Hill. Project by David Ajay that we talked about last week and how it gives back. Um, and to me, I, when we, when we first started our, our initial podcast, the the uh, talk we had about the destruction of the the demolition of Folk MoMA, sorry, the demolition of the folk art museum um, and Folk MoMA. While we're at it, um, the ethics of of practice. In the community in which you work, I just feel like that's a really big topic topic that architects need to take on. You know we're not only ethically and morally responsible to our client, we are also responsible to our communities um and i i that's a, another soapbox that I'll hop up onto, but so I'm hoping that there might be more on this Pratt dialogue series that we we can maybe see a transcript or hear something from it. Um, I'd like to see that get talked about a little more.
0: That's a good one. Anyone else have any any uh predictions, endorsements, anything, any final words?
3: Just a couple of things. I, I didn't notice, t- I think it's today. Um, I think Amelia just posted this. Tom Kundig loses lawsuit against his Washington Valley oh. cabin. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. Yeah. So <laughs> that one is one. picking up steam right now. Um, I'm just following the threat. I'm just looking at the news item right now and I see Paul's posted. And and uh, so that yeah. one is really going. Um, yeah.
0: The, the move, the hut, Organization seems to be a very well organized uh, movement. They, I'm, I'm, we actually uh, learned about the verdict from directly from the Move the Hut organization that <laughs> wanted us to share the information about you know their their success in enforcing him uh, off the mountain. Um, I guess they they felt like an architecture website would would really sympathize with them. I I don't know. According to the comments, you know, it's it's kind of split. Some people. Yeah. Which is not surprising, but um, yeah, that this is, I think, a really good topic to to talk about a little bit more next week. Maybe we can get somebody uh, directly involved in this to join us.
2: That'd be great.
1: Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting case because the actual building wasn't ever intended for inhabitation. Like, no one was going to ever live there. It was supposed to be kind of a or Tom Kundig didn't put any like permanent residential ac- activity into it because it was just for hunting or for a 60 day maximum stay throughout the year. So it was really just like this, you know, wandering, what, what I imagine to be like a wandering mountain man cabin. <laughs> you go there for a certain amount of time, but you're not intending to live there. But nonetheless, the, the the, the thing is going to stay on the ridgeline in the view for however long it can. So um, I think it was a really interesting case because you quickly see how people, how angry people get um, about how they see this fitting into overall conversations about like, whether it's NIMBYism or um, natural preservation or just simple legal battles and doing your due diligence as an architect. Um, It really fits into a lot of those things, but overall was very, very much a clean case, very much a closed case. It seems that, that he didn't, that um, Tom Kundig didn't really, do so much to publicly defend himself. He did. There's no real public statements on the issue. But move the hut is really is really the loudspeaker here. So, um, yeah,
0: I've I've found that pretty interesting. That he's really kind of uh, gone out of his way to avoid any making any kind of comments or statements regarding the decision. I, I believe there was one statement made by the office, not, not by him, that um, that it's an ongoing uh, battle that is about to go into an appeal.
1: Yeah. So I encourage people to read a little bit more about it if they're interested, just because it there are some details that seem like they would lead to another obvious detail, but then might lead in an opposite direction. So, um, well, yeah, maybe also it'll come to an appeal and this case will get picked up again. Um, I also wanted to endorse specifically our most recent screen print, screen print feature. Uh, if people aren't already aware, screen print is a more or less a year-running long feature we've been doing um, on Archonnex where we showcase uh, architectural publications or um, physical publications related to architecture that are um, almost always physical. That's kind of a a founding principle of the series. And it's just kind of to give a little, shine a little light on all of the awesome publications that are coming out and just how incredible the output of quality um, single focus or more like nuanced journalism is around a single subject in this case we most recently featured intern magazine which is i believe just a year old or so they were started by a kickstarter campaign last year and we're featuring their second issue um specifically an interview with jessica walsh of sagmeister and walsh design and what i think is so interesting about this feature in particular is that Not only is Jessica Walsh a bit of a polarizing character, um, if not for the least on her views about internships, she is very straightforward by saying that um, we don't pay our interns, we just pay for their lunch at Sagmeister and Walsh. Um, But the whole point of Intern Magazine, as you may imagine, (laughs) is both kind of advocacy and also just engaging in what they've called intern culture. So you can't quite call it professional culture and you can't quite call it student culture. There's kind of like this third <laughs> medium place in or a limbo space emerging in between where some people will just skip over that entirely. And some people will well wallow in it for years and years. It kind of, that's how the magazine initially got started was that the, um, the guy who started the magazine and the Kickstarter had just spent so much time in internships and saw how useful they were. And yet wasn't making any money out of it. (laughs) So especially in the architecture profession where unpaid internships are so difficult and just controversial, um, I think it's a really interesting issue to look at from the general perspective of just the creative industries as as Intern Magazine does. And uh, I'm really excited to see how the publication continues because it's so new. So that is my endorsement for this week.
0: Well, going on the topic of, uh, of series, uh, that, that we've been publishing, um, I, I also wanted to bring up the working out of the box, uh, series cause we've had some really interesting, um, people featured in the last, last few weeks. So I, I definitely urge everyone to, to look at those and actually Ken uh, the other day suggested that we do a podcast, um, of addressing the working out of the box series maybe you know maybe uh touching base with some of the people that we featured a long time ago uh i think it's a really great idea especially because the working out of the box series is something that we developed back in 2009 in response to the severe uh change in the architecture industry just due to the recession and so it was kind of a way of, of of letting people know that you know there's ways that you can take what you what you've learned and and experienced and apply it into a different field if you're struggling in in uh, as an architect right now. Um, but we've uh, you know this year we found ourselves in a very different situation. The the uh, the industry has really bounced back. The the economy is doing much better. And right now there are actually you know, judging from the feedback that we're getting from employers that are posting jobs on Archonnect, they're not, there aren't enough architects out there right now to fill the positions. So, you know, so maybe some of these people that left, left the industry are coming back. Um, but you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good topic to, to get into. So maybe next week, maybe, maybe a following episode, uh, after next week, but we do plan on talking about that.
3: Can I just read, um, four brief sentences and I'll, be Definitely. Done with my, yeah. Okay. So um, this is the um, obituary from Judith Edelman, who um, architect, uh, ninety-one, um, passed away this week. And this is what how her obituary started. And I thought this is pretty telling, given our conversation the past couple of weeks. At the nineteen seventy-four National Convention of the AIA in San Francisco, Judith Edelman presented data showing that one point two percent of registered architects in the United States were women. Only coal miners, steel workers. And steelworkers, she suggested, counted a lower proportion. These survey results, she said, clearly demonstrate that the alleged grievances are not all in the heads of some paranoid chicks. She then agreed to lead a task force to tackle the issue out of fear that someone insufficiently stubborn would get the job. You know, it doesn't. Wahoo! If that doesn't speak volumes to the the power of of women in this profession to get shit taken care of and done, um, I don't know what does. And I love that she used insufficiently stubborn. I, I would, I definitely would get along with somebody who is insufficiently stubborn. So that's what it takes to change this profession. So <laughs> I thought that uh, was a pretty good. You're here, here,
2: stubbornness.
0: Well, that's a that's a great quote.
2: It is. That's a good note.
0: <laughs> and if you connect with that quote and you haven't listened to our first episode, you should go do so now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well. You know, let's why don't we why don't we end on that on that and uh and call it a show. Thanks everybody for for joining the, the talk again. Uh look forward to next week.
2: Yeah, it was a good talk today. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Paul. Have a good week, everyone. Bye
0: everyone. Bye.
2: Bye.